0: Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show.
1: This is Jay Shapiro again, and again, thanks for listening. I want to talk about a number of topics, and I want to start with something you don't hear much about, and that is our relationship, that is the relationship between Israel and South Africa. South Africa's former Chief Justice, a gentleman named Mogul End, said in an interview with the Jerusalem Post two weeks ago that he believes that his country and Israel should resume their full diplomatic relations soon. Although he stressed he did not speak for the South African government, a recent revealed that he'd be a candidate for the presidency of South Africa. He is a devout Christian. Uh, I think I pronounced his name wrong. It's M-O-G-O-E-N-G. Anyhow, he's a devout Christian. He's a strong supporter of Israel for which the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem presented him with its annual award called the Nehemiah Award uh, several weeks ago. South Africa's ANC government, however, traditionally backs the Palestinians. The capital is Pretoria, and there they recalled its ambassador to Israel in 2018, that's uh, almost five years ago, following violence along the Israel-Gaza border, and announced in 2019 that it had officially downgraded its embassy in Ramat Khan to what's called a liaison office. In July, South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, named Nadeli Pandor, said that Israel should be designated an apartheid state and called on the UN General Assembly to establish a committee a committee, to probe whether it meets the criteria for being called an apartheid state. Wearing a Palestinian kafir, that's a headdress, he told a meeting in Pretoria of Palestinian heads of mission for many as South Africans, the narrative of the Palestinian, Palestinian people's struggle does evoke experiences of our own history of racial segregation and oppression. Unquote. South Africans' chief rabbi, Warren Goldstein, condemned his comments as factually, politically, morally repugnant, repugnant A a defamation of the Jewish state and an insult to the victims of apartheid. Despite the historic relationship between the African National Congress, called the ANC, and the PLO, as well as the South Africans' government identification with the Palestinian people its decision not to dispatch an envoy to Israel for the past five years certainly doesn't help anyone. If South Africa wants to play a positive role, it must engage with both parties. It must engage not only with the PLO, but of course with Israel. Perhaps the South African government should be reminded of the stance taken by Nelson Mandela, the leader credited with ending apartheid. Although Mandela opposed what he viewed as Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories, he supported Israel's right to exist in secure borders. He visited Jerusalem back in uh, 1999 And he said, and I quote, I cannot conceive of Israel withdrawing from territory if Arab states do not recognize Israel within secure borders. Now, the uh, president of the country now served as secretary general to Mandela during his historic post-apartheid presidency. Now, he's been in office since 2018, and is considered a good friend, not of Israel, but of South Africa's small Jewish community, whose numbers, once were very large, have dropped to under 50,000. So it is really an extremely small community. And uh, the, pre- the president uh, smiled as he accepted the credentials of Israel's new ambassador and he shook his hand warmly. And the Israeli ambassador said to the president of South Africa, we believe there's tremendous potential in us working together. Together we can share dreams and together we can fulfill them. There's so much we can do together in the future in science and technology, education and training, food security, climate change and other things. The 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 national chairman of the South African Zionist Federation, a gentleman named Rowan Polovin, pointed out at the time that Israel has much to offer South Africa in terms of cutting-edge technology and innovation related to its current challenges regarding water, electricity, and renewable energy. He, the head of the South African Zionist Federation, is in a unique position, he said. that I'm sorry, he said that South Africa is in a unique position to facilitate positive improvements for Palestinians as well as bringing back to the peace table. South Africa ought to place itself in the center of peaceful and productive Israeli relations and not at the periphery where it is unable to be an effective mediator. So at the moment, we have an ambassador in South Africa. They do not have an ambassador here to have a liaison office. So it's interesting. This is something that's pretty much under the headlines, but uh, let's see what happens and what develops in our relationship with South Africa. Now I say a word about uh, Israeli politics, in particular, as a gentleman who is a member of the Knesset, whose name is Ben Gvir. Now Ben Gvir was a supporter of uh, Mayor Kahana, who was considered a fanatic and a radical. I think he lives in uh, Hebron. At any rate. Um, he is probably going to run on a list for the uh, Knesset in several weeks. Uh, together, I think the National Religious Party, if I'm not mistaken, he's number two on the list. Now, it turns out, because of his background as pretty much a radical, um, to a lot of people who opposed to him, in particular, Jewish, Jewish groups, the um, Back in 2019, when then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was in talks with his party, uh, which was Ben Gvir's party, was considered extremists, uh, so Prime Minister Netanyahu was in talks with them, and he got messages from the U.S. Jewish community not to do so. Now, that's no longer the case. The... Uh, the former prime minister, again, working with Itamar Ben-Gvir, he's the head of a party called Otzma Yehudit, which means Jewish Strength, and um, the former prime minister is working with him to work out an agreement that would get him and Netanyahu back into the seat of prime minister. Now, at least four of the major Jewish groups that spoke out in 2019 against ben say they will not get involved this time around. The American Israel Public Affairs Committee, the American Jewish Committee, the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, and the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. And these latter two represent a broad array of national and Jewish groups. Now, it turns out that the, with the upcoming election, Netanyahu was coordinating campaign tactics with the party Otsum of Ben-Gvir. and Netanyahu met and agreed not to campaign among what each sees as his party natural constituents. Also, Netanyahu broke an agreement between Otzma Yehudit and other far-right parties to ensure they'll be, meet the election threshold. In other words, Netanyahu is depending on these right-wing parties to choose him as prime minister after the election. Now, two prominent pro-Israeli Democrats. One is Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey. And Representative Brad Sherman of California have warned Netanyahu, Netanyahu how damaging it would be to have relation with the party if Netanyahu forms a government and brings Ben Gvir into the government. Now, two groups that spoke up against Ben Gvir back in 2019. The Anti-Defamation League and the Reform Movement told the Jewish Agency, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, that they were just as alarmed now as they were then. Rabbi Rick J. Jacobs, president of the Union for Reform Judaism, said a failure by the organized Jewish community to present a solid wall of opposition to allowing into the government a party based on the teachings of the late racist Rabbi Meir Kahane would have far-reaching consequences, not just for the U.S.-Israel relationship, but for Israel's relationship with U.S. Jews. And he said, for those who identify with Israel because of shared values shared democratic values and shared Jewish values where Jewish or democratic values are not compromised by racism, by the kind of hate-filled politics that ben has espoused. So I think it will definitely will cause a distancing and a dissatisfaction of many, many people who feel very, very committed and very strong in support of Israel. And this is what this Rabbi Jacobs of the uh, reform movement said in an interview recently. In other words, he was saying, uh, we we like Israel depending upon the politics in Israel, which I think, by the way, is really not a nice thing. You have to like and support Israel no matter who is running the government. Israel is the first independent Jewish state in almost 2,000 years. And if you decide that your association with Israel is based on your own local politics where you live, I think that's a terrible mistake. So, because there was this con- condemnation of Ben Veer uh, uh, back in 2019, that's why his party was kept out of the government. But uh, the... Netanyahu may be emboldened to bring into government Ben Now he does indeed. Um, he was aligned with Kahana, and, and back in those days. But, first, but I think he's been mo- quite moderate since that time. The um, the so uh, the prime minister uh, back in 2019, Netanyahu, is always in a funny position. He backed away from the idea of so closely aligning himself with extreme forces in Israeli politics. So um, also, the director of the Anti-Defamation League's Israel office also said that bringing Ben-Gvir into government would erode support for Israel. ADL has alone been deeply concerned with the mainstreaming of extremists uh, ideologies in Israeli society. This is a comment made by the head of the ADL's Israel's office. In other words, <clears throat> what they're saying is, the fact that there's a Jewish state after 2,000 years is very nice, and we will associate with that state as long as we agree with its internal politics. The, although they make a statement like that, this the head of the ADL said, While we don't get involved in Israel Israel electoral politics, we're disturbed by the reports that individuals who espouse such views have been promised by Israel political leaders a role in a future coalition government, as the ADL is an organization deeply committed to Israel's security and well-being as a Jewish and democratic state, who believes that such a development would be corrosive to Israel's founding principles and is standing among its strongest supporters." The, that's interesting, by the way, these people who don't live here and don't vote here are saying we're committed to Israel's security, but in, it depends on who's in the government. That's essentially what they're saying. So three of the four groups, the AJC, the American Jewish Community, the JCPA, and the President's Conference, claim that it is their policy not to take a position on Israeli elections, even though that's precisely what they did three years ago, for example, back in 2019, the executive president of the conference of presidents, uh, conference of presidents, a major Jewish organization, said that Netanyahu's party would uh, parley with uh, Otzma Yehud, was very disturbing. Um, Although uh, he said he understood that Netanyahu had political considerations, politics can't dictate everything. You have to take into consideration all the ramifications, ramifications, all the concerns. So, uh, the um, the president now of the uh, of the Conference of Presidents said that they have a long-standing policy of not having opinions on Israeli elections, other than to celebrate the vibrant democratic process underway. Now, back in the 2019 the American Jewish community released a statement, historically, the views of extremist parties reflecting extreme left or the extreme right have been firmly rejected by mainstream parties, even if the electoral process of Israel's democracy has enabled their presence. However small, the uh, views of the Otschmi-Hudit party, according to the American Jewish community, and I quote, the views of the Otschmi-Hudit party were reprehensible. So the it's interesting Israel's is a democracy. They're going to have elections that will take place in a few weeks. Elections that American Jews do not participate in. The uh, they're committed to the democratic values on a historical, uh, historical level. The uh, it's interesting. The, the American Jews should not speculate what the government is going to look like after the election, because it's not their role to be involved in Israeli elections. The uh, back in 2019, the Jewish Council for Public Affairs uh, sent a private letter uh, to Netanyahu, saying that um, we don't uh, we don't uh, we don't. Um, they they condemn uh, Otzma Yudit the Ben Gvir's party, but they say we don't speak out on internal Israeli political issues. So, and essentially, these American groups are speaking out of both sides of the mouth. We don't interfere, but we're not too happy if Ben Gvir goes into the government. So. The best thing they could do is either decline to comment. Uh, the uh, they don't they they don't uh, speak out on uh, who should win the election or things of that nature. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, uh, I should quote a gentleman named Scott Lusensky. He's a professor of Israel and Jewish studies at the University of Maryland. Said that the failure of Jewish organizations to speak out could be attributable to a number of factors, including one that plagues Israel as well, and that is election fatigue. We are now in the fifth election since 2019, and the organizations in America may figure out it's wiser to wait and see how it plays out before weighing in. And he said, and I quote, given the fatigue and the uncertainty of what a coalition would look like, some groups are hedging and waiting for the post-election opportunity when parties negotiate to set up a coalition before they voice any objections. The uh, so uh, Jewish groups uh, should essentially adhere to deference when it comes to Israel. And uh, the while the prospect of be orthodox being in the government was extraordinary back in 2019 it now is an accepted thing so let's see what happens i'll be back after the break
0: shalom this is nadia matar from the sovereignty movement at a time when there is so much disinformation you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in israel israel news talk radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.
1: You're back with Jay Shapiro. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Last week marked the second anniversary of the so-called Abraham Accords, under which Israel signed normalization agreements with the United Arab Emirates and with Bahrain, which were later extended to include Morocco. Now, skeptics at the time, two years ago, noted that Israel had not been at war with these Arab Muslim states to begin with, and so they downplayed the idea that the accords, which were reached under the Trump administration and Netanyahu governments, They suggested they could not be called peace treaties because Israel was not at war with those countries. But their importance should not be underestimated. The Abraham Accords marked a strategic diplomatic shift for Israel and for the entire region, and the relationships with the countries has flourished since then beyond even optimistic expectations. As the United Arab Emirate Minister of State for Foreign Affairs wrote in an opinion piece several weeks ago in the Jerusalem Post, was a moment that changed the course of history. On the bright, sunlit morning of September 15, 2020, when Abdullah bin Zayed, Foreign Minister of the UAE, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and Abdullah bin Rashi al-Zani, foreign minister of Bahrain, held a law of signed copies of the Abraham Accords in front of the White House that signaled not simply the end of 48 years of hostility and distrust, but the beginning of a new political and an economic era for our region. In establishing full diplomatic relations with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Israel, had chosen prosperity over politics, cooperation over isolation, opportunity over suspicion. Everyone present on the south lawn of the White House understood the magnitude of the occasion and its potential to elevate the lives of people across the Middle East in the decades to come. That is what the foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates said. Now today, it seems natural that a minister from a Gulf state would write something in a Israeli paper praising the relations between the countries, but we have to remind ourselves that it was not always obvious. Similarly, to mark the anniversary, Prime Minister now Yair Lapid hosted the UAE Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation at the prime minister's office in Jerusalem. It's important to note that although the administration and government in the United States and Israel changed in the meantime, the accords have held firm. For example, in the so-called Negev summit earlier this year, this is the mark of true treaties between countries, rather than just agreements between leaders. The contrast between the Abraham Accords and the Oslo Accords signed 29 years ago. (coughs) We're two years into the agreement. It's been very successful so far, and we can only hope and pray that it continues to be successful. It's odd, however, that I think, I'm not an expert in the field, but I think one of the reasons they signed the Accords was because everybody was afraid of Iran. So sort of pushed all these countries together, including Israel. But once they started getting together, they started realizing or they began to realize that this is good for everybody, even even without the Iran factor. And, and so things have developed over the past two years. So it's almost, let's put it this way, as I see it, I'm certainly not an expert in the field. They sort of backed into this agreement between Israel and these other countries. Uh, they didn't walk forward into it. They backed into agreement because of the fear of Iran. But there's been tremendously good results. And if the, everyone is careful, it will only be more and more beneficial as time goes by. So it's the two-year anniversary of something no one could have predicted. Maybe five years ago, you know, certainly not ten years ago. So let's hope it continues in a positive direction. And since I'm speaking about positive things, there's another something that's usually we be considered under the radar but there is now an Israel-France forum to battle anti-Semitism. A joint Israel-France forum was founded to battle anti-Semitism, and this forum met last week in Paris for the first time. Uh, They had planned to meet earlier, but because of the pandemic, they didn't. Representatives of government ministries from both Israel and from France representatives from civil society, and representatives of the French Jewish community convened in Paris uh, uh, that will be about two or three weeks ago, I forget the exact date. They convened for two days to discuss ongoing efforts to reduce anti-Semitic acts. The French ambassador who's in charge of human rights and battling anti-Semitism, said that we took stock of of all ongoing efforts in battling anti-Semitism, both on the national level and the multilateral European levels. We're looking into our respective policies on education, research, and remembrance. We are also looking into the issue of restitution, of Jewish property stolen during the war by the Nazis. And that's very interesting. It's a dialogue that brings together different cabinet ministers. It was organized by the special French delegation in charge of battling anti-Semitism, racism, and anti-LGBTQ with the foreign ministry, which also includes the Interior justice, education, cultural ministries that so it it really is something that apparently the French are taking seriously. On the Israeli side they have the Foreign Ministry, the Diaspora Affairs Ministry, and the Justice Ministry. Yad Vashem is present as well as experts and researchers on related issues and also representatives of the civil society, including the Umbrella Organization of French Jews, which is known as the CRIF, and a, uh, the Young Jewish Community and other Jewish organizations in France. So it's an occasion to really to look at what's happening in anti-Semitic acts in France, especially online. One of the uh, speakers said, for instance, we had 400,000 anti-Semitic incidents. There were 400,000 anti-Semitic posts on social media in 2021 in France. Out of 3.5 million worldwide, almost half of French Jews have experienced in their lifetime, one way or another, anti-Semitic verbal or physical aggression. So the, uh, this is an opportunity for the French government in particular this, to demonstrate a commitment, uh, but it be and, and they've said things in the past. They've spoken at the international forum on show and memorials. And, but then now, apparently they're getting really serious about. It. Some of the principal issues they've discussed are education programs especially that of young students supporting the work of French memorial institutions. Uh, and the, there are people working against Holocaust negation and distortion, and they're advancing educational projects. The, uh, but they're also teaching the, the scourge of anti-Semitism, not only the kids in schools, but they're, they're teaching it to civil servants like teachers and police uh, ju- officers and judges. So at, the, at this meeting they discussed at length the best ways of working with the social media giants like Facebook and Twitter. France has taken a very strong position during its presidency of the European Union including a legal framework to increase the responsibility of the social media platforms for deleting hate and anti-Semitic content. But that still appears, okay. So the one of the things that they want to do is to monitor social networks, which is really the big thing today. You know, social work, uh, social networks didn't uh, exist ten years ago, and now it's it, it's a basis for spreading all kind of information, positive and negative, and they have to figure out how to. Uh, I don't want to use the word control or supervise, but I have to seek to it bad things that don't get spread around. The French side is, is interested in, in doing this. They, so they have to set up mechanisms of exchange so that they can study the scope of online anti-Semitism and the different forms that take place so what they really have to do in order to fight anti-Semitism, they have to share what they've learned in terms of good practice and data and other things like that. So uh, the uh, these people, the uh, one of the uh, the head of the Foreign Ministry's Bureau for World Jewish Affairs, uh, said that we're not necessarily speaking about a structured coalition with defined criteria and legal framework. A rigid structure would actually be more difficult to put in place, more time-consuming. So what they're trying to do is unite all interested parties in a loose coalition committed to the same value of battling anti-Semitism in all its forms. Another what they're saying is, we're not going to essentially set up a, another organization to fight anti-Semitism. But as I understand it, what they're saying is they're going to figure out how to share information in such a way they can combat anti-Semitism. So that's good. So, so the, the bottom line that there is now an Israel-France forum to battle anti-Semitism, and that can only be a positive thing. And since I've devoted uh, this section of my program to what I like to call under the radar, uh, I want to touch upon a couple of other things that are not uh, related, but uh, they're under the radar, and they're the kind of things that I think should be of interest to the listeners. Uh, For example, the Israeli government has approved 270 doctors from the diaspora for Aliyah. It's always been a problem with doctors coming here and getting recognized. In particular, I remember years ago, it was a problem with doctors that came from the Soviet Union, because their question was what their academic education was really like. And I remember doctors coming from the Soviet Union, they had to sweep streets before they could be recognized as doctors. Now what happened is, uh, a week ago the government approved a plan to increase the number of medical specialists and hospital residents learning a specialty who are living abroad and eligible to settle in Israel under the law of return. So this government decision is expected to bring another 270 doctors to Israel. The program will have a budget of 2.7 million Israeli shekels from the Prime Minister's Office and the Health Ministry, and also importantly, there is a group called in the government called Development of the Periphery, which includes the Negev and the Galilee, which doesn't have, don't have enough Jews. The law is intended to help the medical specialists make aliyah in order to strengthen the medical systems and hospitals that are desperate for more physicians. So all of this is part of the vision to turn the periphery, which the negative and the cali, into stronger centers for themselves. They want to strengthen the hospitals in the periphery, and that's a critical move to boost these areas. The possibility of accomplishing the task of absorbing immigrants, along with upgrading the health system, is an opportunity that must be realized. The office invests heavily in the health sector based on the perception that good medicine will lead to positive immigration and a better lifestyle for the residents of the various regions outside the central region in Israel. It turns out that the uh, health ministry uh, invests heavily in the health sector based on the perception that good medicine will lead to positive immigration and a better lifestyle for the residents of these regions outside of Tel Aviv. I mean, they, you want to have healthy people in Tel Aviv also, but um, the, the Galil and the Negev have been really uh, ignored by all the governments of Israel. The advanced medical services in the Negev and the Galilee and the what's called the periphery areas are not a luxury. The residents of those areas are entitled to the same advanced medicine and, and the shorter lines for appointments and excellent doctors, just like the center of the country. So many of the, con- many of the doctors will come to Israel have a lot of experience, so the amount of training they need in the Israel medical system is relatively small, so that will give them a high potential to integrate into the Israeli health system. So this program is to bring doctors, 270 doctors, and they're gonna be in a program that's eight months long, and it'll include the theoretical studies and practical training. They want to address the existing shortage in Israel of doctors and medical teams, especially in the periphery areas. And there's been a big impact of the corona crisis there's a demand for workers and medical professions, professions, and um, they want to remove the barriers to the employment of immigrants and medical professions. They always made it hard historically for doctors who came to Israel who were, who were experienced, and they had to pass all kind of crazy tests and things of that nature, that, so they were discouraged. So... The manpower crisis in healthcare has been neglected for so many years, which has really reached the point of a real danger to the stability of the system. In the past year, they finally began to address the critical issue with both immediate and long-term solutions. So that what, they're, what they're emphasizing now is the promotion of the outlying areas. You know, you live in the Tel Aviv area, you have access to all kind of medicine and and they, you don't have it in the peripheries and people who don't live there don't realize. The government finally woke up to this problem. They wanted to reinforce the medical system and the periphery in particular and now they're adding hundreds of places for medical students in various programs and thousands of places for nursing students. The problem with nursing, by the way, and I, I noticed my own family, is it doesn't pay well. I don't know what it pays outside of Israel, but uh, one of the members of, my, of uh, my family has been a nurse for years. And now is going out of nursing, going into high tech, because that's where the money is today. So they want to provide a horizon of medical personnel. They, um, this is really needed. They have a shortage of medical staff from and, and the, uh, we can resolve a, a good bit of this with new immigrants who come already educated and trained. So they wanted to uh, in order encourage immigration of those involved in the medical profession and remove the barriers and challenges they face in Israel with the, with the aim of optimally integrating them into the health system. That's very interesting. It's something that's really under the uh, radar. You don't think there are people who don't want to move, for example, into the outlying areas, like in the Galilee and the because they, they can't get proper medical service. So the idea here, the bottom line, is to improve the medical services in the outlining areas and one of, one of the ways to do it is cut down the red tape for, so you can bring immigrant doctors who are already trained and educated and experienced into the outlying areas. Hopefully, this will make a change. Uh, I'll be back after the break. Howdy, this is Rita from Leak City, Texas It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Doris from Tennessee. Me and my dog, Buster, really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. (laughs) You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Just before I sat down to do this segment of the program, I uh, was reading a newspaper, and I came across, a Hebrew newspaper, and I came across an item that really stands out, and it's not really a big news item, but it's too too big for uh, what I call under the radar. It's just an outstanding I'll just take a minute to tell the listeners about it. In the city of Lloyd there is a school, uh, a religious uh, school. The grades go apparently from kindergarten up to 12. And five years ago, they started collecting money by uh, either confining people who gave them Bottles that have uh, return price on them, you know, like a soda bottles or whatever you what have you, and they started collecting these bottles and turning them in for money. And they put together the money, and they raised over a period of something like uh, five years. They raised eighty four thousand. They they collected. 84,000 bottles and got the money. And uh, according to the paper, during the period of five years, the students of this yeshiva in the city of Lud co- collected thousands of, of bottles. And from that, they turned it into 130,000 shkalim, uh, which they used to write a Sefer Torah. And the Sefer Torah was presented to, to the school right before the holiday in a ceremony that included the mayor of the city of Lud and other organizations came to help them enjoy the happiness of having raised the money from, actually, from from agorot, from from small money, over a period of five years. Some of the students, uh, over that period of five years, finished school, they finished 12th grade. They either went on to Hezdu Yeshivot or to the army, and they, as many as possible, came back to be at the ceremony when this safer Torah was presented to a local synagogue. Five years, 84,000 bottles, and the writing of a safer Torah. That's something, it's, it's not so much a news item, and it's not so much under the uh, radar. It's something that stands out by itself. I wanted to share it with the listeners. It's a fantastic thing. And since I started the program with that item, which, as I said, is not just under the radar, not not big news, but it's something, uh, I'll mention something which is really under the radar, but uh, I found it of interest, and I want to share it with the listeners. Uh, as you know, uh, as everybody knows, of course, Queen Elizabeth passed away about a month ago, and uh, the Haredi newspapers. The uh, newspapers that are, there's a number of them that serve the, uh, what's called the Haredi community here in Israel. They were able to do something uh, starting about a month ago that they haven't done for 70 years. They printed a picture of the British monarch on the front page of their newspapers. The reason they did it now is because the British monarch is a king, a man. For the past 70 years, Queen Elizabeth II has never been portrayed in the Haredi press, which is comprised mainly of print newspapers, since in those communities photos of women are banned for modesty reason. Um, uh, An Israeli Haredi pop singer and opinion leader named Yishai Lapidot tweeted, he got thousands of people to listen to his uh, tweet, that said, for the first time in decades, the Haredi media will be able to publish photos of a British monarch. The He added a photo to a newspaper from a newspaper called Mirkasa Iñanim, which is at the center of what's happening. It's a tabloid newspaper which published an article Who's underlined red, he is the grandson of a woman who is considered among the righteous of the nations and a friend of the British Jewish community. Uh, the, the Haredi press has been going through changes in recent years regarding the photos of women, yet most of the print outlets still abide by the ban. The English speaking version of the weekly Mishpacha magazine, that's the family magazine. Um, they have, have, have begun, after all these years, every now and then showing a picture of a woman. Back in 2018, the newspaper The Forward published an article explaining that the orthodox magazine Mishpacha appears to have reversed previous policy against publishing images of women, at least on its social media channels, but not in its print editions. And an email to subscribers last week, the magazine announced it's begun to ramp up the social media presence, and they include a photo of three women. And it's really a very big move. Uh, another progress is that the Haredi news outlets in the U.S. are almost all online now, whereas in Israel, the same outlet won't have any any online presence. Since most of the journalists in these outlets are on social media, some of these outlets in Israel have a certain social media presence, not an official site. Like when Hillary Clinton was nominated for president of the United States back in 1916, uh, there were concerns over how to publish daily newspapers in Israel in the United States without displaying a photo of the, of the candidate and especially they were worried what would happen if she'd be elected. How could they not uh, print a, a photo of the president of the United States? Well, it turned out she lost to Trump. So they didn't have that. But the Back in uh, 2011, Mrs. Clinton was eliminated from a photo when she was serving as a secretary of state. they showed a picture, uh, a whole bunch of key Washington policy makers, uh, and uh, the Photoshop eliminated a picture of Clinton, and it was highly criticized by both Jewish and non-Jewish figures. So they have a major problem of printing photos of women, and uh, now at least uh, vis-à-vis the monarch of the British Empire They no longer have a problem that they had for 70 years. So it's nice to see that uh, problems get resolved. I want to say something about a subject very serious, which is the Israeli army's purity of arms and the Palestinian Authority bloodlust. Several uh, Israeli army officers have been killed in the last several weeks. Uh, Israeli soldiers are forced to confront enemies with no scruples, and it's not a new one in the Jewish state. Debates about it have been conducted for decades, but the issue catapulted to international headlines several weeks ago when the administration in Washington admonished Israel to rethink its rules of engagement. Uh, Of course, uh, I think that President Biden and his team weren't suggesting that the security of the country with which they claim to have an unbreakable bond would be better served by shedding some of its military ethics in favor of self-preservation. No, the White House and State Department had the opposite idea, that Israel should increase its combat morality. This uh, interesting, the uh, a Christian Arab American resident of East Jerusalem, while she was uh, st- uh, was struck down while she was covering a clash between Israeli security forces and Palestinian gunmen in what has become a hotbed of Palestinian terrorism. As uh, she was a reporter, and she was accidentally shot apparently by an Israeli soldier. Rather than bemoan the tragedy of a member of the press being caught in a deadly crossfire, the Palestinian Authority and its supporters in international media promptly accused the Israeli soldier of killing this woman in cold blood. Now, even the president of the Palestinian Authority knew this was a lie Regardless of whether the bullet that killed this woman was from an IDF weapon or one used by a Palestinian terrorist, it took place during an armed clash. It was clear to all concerned, other than those whose hatred of Israel outweighs all integrity, that no Israeli soldier would or did take aim at a press person with the word press clearly marked on his or her flak jacket. Abbas was so concerned about the direction of the fire he refused Israel's repeated pleas to conduct a joint ballistic examination of the bullet. As usual, the Palestinian Authority preferred to take the opportunity to deflect from its responsibility for inciting and funding terrorism by demonizing Israel. His ploy was successful. Although Israel tried to honor the family, uh, uh, the the funeral was to be a somber event. um, The uh, Israel was blamed for the very chaos created by the Islamic mob at her funeral, uh, apparently enjoying the attention and status of victims of Israeli wrongdoing. The family, which had coordinated with the Israeli police, Ahead of the burial, rejected this version of events. They began to call for an investigation to prove that the Israeli army had shot this woman. So, uh, the Israeli government, the Israeli army issued a statement pointing to a high possibility that she was accidentally hit by a fire from an Israeli soldier. Uh, the uh, the, there were there was a lot of shooting. There was an exchange of fire in which life risking, widespread, indiscriminate shots were fired at Israeli soldiers. The uh, and the possibility remained that she was hit by bullets fired by the Palestinians. Israel wanted to investigate this. A White House spokesman said. And I quote, we're going to continue to press our Israeli partners to closely review their policies and practices on rules of engagement and consider additional steps to mitigate the risk of civilian harm, protect journalists, and prevent similar tragedies in the future. This was a statement issued by the American State Department. The... uh, it's interesting. Um, at the, our prime minister answered back, and, the, and then I, this to his credit, the, uh, the Yair Lapid, our prime minister, said, No one will di- dictate our live fire instructions to us, and we are fighting for our lives. The IDF, chief of staff, and he alone determines and will continue to determine the rules of engagement in accordance with our operational needs and values. They are implemented in a strict manner by soldiers and their commanders. There has not been and will not be any political involvement in the matter. Israeli troops have my full backing in their mission to protect the citizens of Israel. That's what our defense minister said. The uh, U.S. Department uh, went on... To uh, say uh, that uh, the uh, they told reporters a woman by the name of uh, uh, Barbara Leaf, L E A F, she's U. S. Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. She said that the security conditions on the West Bank do concern us greatly, but they also concern Israel and they also concern the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, never mind that the Palestinian authorities at fault for these conditions which make a mockery of the rules of Israeli engagement. And uh, it's interesting. that the, the uh, This woman from the State Department added, our part in this is to ensure that to the greatest degree possible security cooperation is robust and continuing. But those other things are done around and outside the secure operation that sustains it. And then she went on, this, this uh, spokesman for the State Department, to uh, spew the same platitude that's proven time and again to be totally forced about how improving economic conditions in the West Bank and Gaza can help and sustain improvement in security conditions. Now, this spokesman for the State Department didn't say a word about the Palestinian Authority and Hamas terrorism. So the uh, it's interesting that this is a response of the, of the American State Department and the, uh, the so it, the Israel is a sovereign country that will make its own decisions. No one knows the Israel army processes and procedures better than the army itself. It's not on to any other country or any other entity to say precisely what the Israeli Army or any military security organization around, around, around the world should do. It's incumbent to continue to underscore the importance that we place on mitigating civilian harm and taking steps, including all kind of procedures. So, uh, so what happened is that the Israeli Army really tries not to harm civilians. I know myself, having served in the Army, before there was all this rioting. I was in the army 40 years ago. And uh, we had really strict instructions then about how to use our arms, particularly when there are civilians in the area. So the IDF purity of arms uh, is something I think we can be proud of. And, and even though the Palestinian Authority and those who, uh, who hate Israel want to blame Israel for everything that happens, it's simply not true. And because this woman who was killed, she was a Christian Arab American who lives in East Jerusalem, and uh, she is a, uh, since she's an American citizen, the Palestinian Authority took advantage of the situation to essentially get the American government involved in condemning Israel for her death. Israel went to great extent in order to see what would what actually had happened, and indeed, if she was killed by an Israeli soldier, it was because she was in a line line of fire during a, a a shootout between Israel and the Palestinian terrorists. These things can happen. Uh, I don't remember the exact number, but quite a few uh, reporters who were in. Uh, in war areas have been killed even this year, and she's a casualty, I guess you can really say she's a casualty of her job. When something like this happens, everybody's ready to gang up on Israel and blame us without knowing the facts. Israel makes a real effort to get the facts straight, and if indeed someone is killed by uh, poor Israelis, they admit to it. So uh, the we have a strong belief in what's called purity of arms. That's one of the things that makes the Israeli army really stand out. And since we're on the subject of the Palestinians, I want to say something else. The United Nations Security Council doesn't seem to tire of scrutinizing, chastising Israel and its uh, monthly discussion on Palestinians. The uh, the uh, U.N. granted perpetual refugee status to Palestinians, and it's enhanced by a perpetual spotlight. You might think there were other refugees deserving attention, like uh, in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan— and the open to Tigrayan conflict. Do think that other refugees would get some attention? No, it's not true. The position of the Palestines is not to be usurped within the world body. Only the Palestinians have a UN organization dedicated to their needs, the UN Relief Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA. All other displaced people, whether they are scattered around the globe, handled by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, only the Palestinians um, get special uh, care by the UN. So other matters like Iran's advancing to gain nuclear capability while supporting terrorism, developing missiles, uh, that doesn't bother the UN. Only the Palestinian refugees And uh, it's really a shame that the UN has come to that. Something happened this week that uh, has a lot of repercussions, and it is the following. The government of Australia uh, revoked its recognition of Western Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That was just done this week. The Bible records how the city of Jerusalem was the ancient capital of the kingdom of Israel over 2,000 years ago and the site of the temple. However, in modern times, many in the international community refuse to acknowledge that Jerusalem is part of Israel, even though most world leaders who visit come to Jerusalem to meet with Israeli prime ministers, ministers, and other top officials here. It's not a silent denunciation. At least six times in the last decade, the United Nations General Assembly has approved a Jerusalem resolution which disavows Israel's connections to the city. It declares that actions taken by Israel to impose laws, jurisdiction, and administration over the Holy City of Jerusalem are illegal and thus null and void. The text also recalls UN Resolution 181, that was the original partition plan which held that Jerusalem was, co- was a corpus separandum, which is a Latin word for a separate entity. Even the United States failed until recently to recognize that Jerusalem was part of Israel's. U.S. citizens living in Israel who wanted to register the birth of their children in that city, Jerusalem, could not have Israel as the country of birth on their passports. Domestically, the argument over Jerusalem has often focused on whether it should be a united city under Israeli sovereignty or a shared capital, with the eastern part of the city becoming part of a future state of Palestine. But in an international arena, the battle is the recognition that Jerusalem, even the western part of the city within the pre-1967 lines, is part of Israel. Israel's announcement that it will no—I'm sorry, Australia's announcement uh, that it will no longer recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel comes just two weeks before Israel's election. It could also discourage other countries from standing up in favor of Israel's ties to Jerusalem. It could also mark the start of the reversal of Israel's hard-won diplomatic victories to legitimize its ties to to Jerusalem in the international arena. Now, the argument now is based on the fact that last week, uh, the Australia announced it was withdrawing former Prime Minister Morrison's 2018 decision to recognize West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He was only talking about West Jerusalem, and now the Australian government has flip-flopping and denying that. The interesting enough the react, reaction in Jerusalem when Morrison announced more than four years ago was un- underwhelming. The Prime Minister's office did not immediately issue a statement praising what the Australians had done, and the foreign ministry only welcomed them saying it was a step in the right direction. So you ask yourself, why when Australia recognized the western part of Jerusalem four years ago, did the Israeli government give it such a cold response? See, Because a year after the U.S. recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and announced it would move its embassy there, the Australians acted not with the same conviction of the Americans, but rather with the reluctance of the Russians. The Russians, six months before the U.S. announcement, issued a statement saying, we view West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. So now the Australians have chosen to do what the Russians did. They recognize only West Jerusalem. I think that is the reason why, when they indeed recognized West Jerusalem, the Israeli government had a less than enthusiastic response, because we in Israel consider the entire city of Jerusalem as our capital. capital. So uh, the Russians, whose relationship with Israel is now being strained by the war in Ukraine, have not reversed their Jerusalem move, while Australia, considered among Israel's best friends in the world, has done just that. And and what what have the Australians done by the reversal, by no longer recognizing all of Jerusalem as Israel's capital? They have essentially said that West Jerusalem, which has been the country's capital since 1948, is up for negotiations. The the uh, foreign minister of Australia uh, said this week that Jerusalem is the final status issue that should be resolved as any as a part of any peace agreement. Western Jerusalem. Uh, and will always be a part of Israel. No serious peace proposal has ever suggested otherwise. So Australia, no longer recognizing all of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, was, of course, praised by the Palestinian Authority because it reinforces the rejectionist tendency amid the Palestinians, and strengthens their destructive illusion they are just waiting long enough, pressure hard enough, they'll have their demands met with no concessions needed on their part toward Islam. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what exactly did the, has the Palestinian Authority done to merit this Australian move? Then there was the way that the decision was taken. Uh, at the beginning of, of the week, the Guardian newspaper reported that the Australia's recognition of West Jerusalem was deleted from the Australian Foreign Ministry's website. The Foreign Ministry issued a flat denial that there was a change of policy, yet a few hours later reversed itself and, that, and announced exactly that change of policy that Australia no longer recognizes the entire city of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The bottom line, the reaction to what the Australians have just done, is the following. Jerusalem should prepare for the possibility that Australia might recognize a Palestinian state if this sounds far-fetched, consider the following. Three weeks ago, the Australian Labor Party called for a walkback of the decision on Jerusalem, which was taken four years ago, as well as for the next Labor government to recognize Palestine as a state. If the party if that party follow through on any on one of the pledges, which means that they'll no longer recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, they might they may do the same on the second thing and recognize the Palestinian state. Secondly, Australia's flip flop should lead to a greater appreciation in Jerusalem of the the American decision not to act like the Australians and not reverse the decision made by Trump to move the embassy to Jerusalem, even though the American president himself was opposed to the Jerusalem embassy move by Trump. The uh, interesting, the This is the situation now. One of the Western democracies, Australia, has taken back its decision four years ago to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and essentially to say that the city should be divided again with the terrorist Palestinian Authority. That is a bad surprise at the beginning of the Jewish New Year, but it is a fact on the ground. It's important that people know about it. Now I want to change the subject, and uh, I want to quote something that was recently said and written by a friend of mine. I did not get permission uh, to use his name because I didn't have time. Uh, he is someone who had lost a son in the army here about 10 years ago, and I want to uh, share with the listeners something that he wrote. He's an American Ola, he came on Aliyah, and he wrote the following There can be no war more just than the one we here in Israel have been engaged in on and off for the last 100 years. This is a war of self defense of survival, where we are fighting for our homes and our families against a cruel, barbaric enemy that refuses to make peace and will settle for no less than the destruction of Israel. So while it was with understandable trepidation that we send our children off to war to send their national responsibility. Now, I, after my, the loss of my son, I had to learn first and foremost that my son was gone, will not come back. Now, this is a terrible thing for a parent to have to suffer. Really, I don't think there's anything worse. No, but his child, he himself writes, was neither the first nor sadly the last beautiful child to be murdered in Israel by an implacable enemy. So uh, it's interesting. We have to defend the nation with our lives. Now we worry for our grandchildren. If he who saves a single life saves the world, as the Talmud says, then when a single life is lost, an entire world dies with it. Yet, I feel, to my dismay, that our government can be soft on terrorism. The politicians talk a good game, but many either don't accept terror as an existential threat or they refuse to do what is necessary to eradicate it. Even those leaders here in Israel, who go around proclaiming themselves bastions of security and defense, rarely deliver on their bravado. The Knesset passed a bill against the Palestinians uh, pay for slave disbursements. That's where the, if, if, uh, if a, an Arab terrorist gets killed uh, in an act of terrorism, then his family gets a disbursement from the Palestinian Authority. 30. But he found out that monies diverted are only temporarily frozen being held in escrow when or if the Palestinians change their policy. Hundreds of millions of dollars being loaned to the Palestinians, making up for those funds that are withheld. Additional massive millions in cash, which is essentially protection money, it was given by the Netanyahu government to Hamas, even as they, Hamas, targeted our soldiers and civilians alike. Alike, There is an abundant amount of love in this, ma- in this amazing country, Israel. Yet sometimes it begins as pity for a family that suffered a loss. But then it, reels, it reveals itself as true selfless love a a camaraderie that continually reminds us that we are never alone. So this is the way it is. We have a stubborn, sincere belief in God that love is a secret ingredient and gives us and many others the strength to go on and do something worthwhile with our lives. So this is a, uh, I didn't read the whole statement, Is by the family that lost their son in the army, but they love Israel and they're suffering, and we all really suffer with them. So uh, we're now two weeks before an election, and it really is very sad. As I have mentioned previously, and I'll repeat now, the, the biggest problem with the electoral system in Israel is that you no, do not have a representative who represents you. Like, for example, in the United States and other many Western democracies, the, uh, the country is divided up into regions and each region elects a representative in the Congress of the country. It's true in the United States. The United States has sort of a compromise because they also have a Senate in which uh, two senators are elected from every state. But in a sense, that's interesting also because two senators from uh, New York, which has a huge population, or California, have the same two senators as North Dakota, which has a population It's not even worth... The same as even one city in the bigger states. That's the American system. But the bottom line is when you go to the polls there, you know you're voting for someone who not only represents you as an individual, but it represents that area of the country in which you live and has its interests at heart. In Israel, we don't have that. We're giving a list of 120 names, of which we have to choose the whole— actually you can say it's really a great bargain, you get 120 names for one vote. The problem is that you were presented with a list that you, you yourself didn't choose, you had no say in it, and you have to accept the whole list as it is. As I think I've mentioned in previous programs, I often say to people who claim that they really understand politics in Israel and they're going to vote for a particular party, I ask them if they can name the 10 top names on the party list for which they are voting. And no one can answer that question. In other words, you may like a name or two at the top of the list and therefore you vote for that name but 119 others along with your vote. That is the major problem in Israel, and I believe that's one of the reasons that we're coming up with our fifth election in two and a half years, which, by the way, cost a fortune of money because money is given to the political parties for their campaign, money that could do much better benefit from it by helping other sectors of society that need help. Instead, the political parties get the money. So that is a major problem here in Israel. The election is scheduled for early in November, just a little bit, a couple of days before the election in the United States. And we are given uh, presented with a number of lists, And we have to choose a list, even if we don't know who's on that list. And uh, that's a very sad situation and one that I think is going to cost plenty to the population of Israel. The thing that's good, uh, despite the electoral system, is the fact that people are patriotic. The army is strong people believe in the country, even though they don't believe in the politicians, probably can't even name most of the people in the Knesset, but in a sense, it can really be said that the population in Israel is better, wiser than the politicians that that it elects to office. It's a sad situation, but it's a real one. So what I discussed now was what happened with Australia and a few words about the election. Let's see what happens in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening.
0: You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now
1: to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and
0: Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too advertise with israel news talk radio and get your message out to people we'll build a personalized package for you contact advertising at israelnewstalkradio.com straight talk from israel you're listening to israel news talk radio Hi, this is Chavadax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Da from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom!